Welcome back to Rethinking Politics, episode 54. <laughs> good job, So Dan. far, so good. I'm proud of you. We're calm. We're completely calm and professional all the time. We're really on top of things. Well, we're I at least am. Half, half of these right up here. <laughs> everything's fine. Everything's going to be fine. Just like everything's fine in Afghanistan, which is what we're going to talk about today. First, let me give you a disclaimer. Not a disclaimer. Let me give you a preliminary detail about a previous episode. I mentioned that if you live in America, you li- you are in the top 1% for wealth. That's not true. And that's not what I meant. I had conflated a couple different things. One, there are two things that are true that you can see how they kind of came together in my head. Uh, and someone pointed this out to me. They were like, where are you getting that statistic? And I was like, oh, let me show you. And I was like, wait, wait, wait. Wait, that can't be true. <laughs> I'm, I'll tell you where I'm getting that statistic. I'm just confused. <laughs> um, so what is true is to say, if you live in the United States, you are not poor by the world's standards. And that's true even if you're homeless, assuming you're taking advantage of the things that are offered to homeless people, uh, live in shelters, uh, free meals, those kind of things. If you've got a place to stay and you've got food, you're not poor by the world's standards. You know, if you've got a reliable source of food, a place you can go that you know you're going to get food every day, um, compared to so many people, you are, you are not in the bottom 20%. Uh, now, which is to say, relative, what I was thinking of was relative poverty, proverb, well, relative. There you go. Poverty. Uh, which, which for obvious reasons, America is just way wealthier than, than most places in the world. Uh, the statistic I was thinking of that is true is that if you are live in America, you are in the top 1% of people in the world across time. Time was the dimension there that I had, I had Mm -hmm. left out and, Mm which is what made the statistic false. Um, we are absurdly wealthy by historical records, right? We are just crazy wealthy. You're probably in the top 0.1% or 0.01 or 0.001% even of people who've ever lived in the world because it's just that prosperous. No, yeah, and that it's something well we've talked compared. about before is how how different today's world is than any time period before in terms of just material wealth. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, with with few exceptions, you are you have access to more goods, to better food, to better entertainment, to better everything today than you do than you would if you were a king in previous generations, mm-hmm. or even if you were a millionaire or billionaire a uh, hundred years ago or fifty years ago. It's just technology does wonders. And anyway, with that, we're going to move on to Afghanistan. Afghanistan has been all over the news, and rightfully so. At first, I was not so interested in the topic. We'd been in Afghanistan for forever. We're now leaving Afghanistan. Whatever. But if you go and you start watching videos, you start getting into the details, things get really interesting and really odd really quickly. And to begin with, we wanted to give a shout out to to a particular reporter and organization. Um, we often draw on CNN often for things that we're going to debunk and things that we're going to turn. <laughs> right? They kind of are our punching bag of late. That's for sure. <laughs> they are. Right. We want, we want a consistent narrative from a single news source and CNN just provides that really well uh, in which to then look at their words and, and consider them. And in this case, Clarissa Ward, who is, you, you mentioned, is she their chief Yeah, the international chief correspondent is what CNN says. Chief international correspondent. Got those words mixed up. Means the same those thing. Those words are wrong. Right. You can go watch videos of her there in Kabul. Kabul. We've heard a couple ways to pronounce it today. We were looking at it up to see what the right yeah. one is. 
we, we found that no, nothing conclusive. <laughs> um, and she, uh, she's on the ground there right now. You can watch her speaking to just leaders of various little military groups there. Uh, in some cases, it's, it's commanders of a, of a larger group. In other cases, it's just like soldiers on the streets and then other people on the streets. And, uh, she's wandering around, uh, dressed in the hijab, as you can imagine, to try and <laughs> avoid ire. This would be a bad time to not be wearing that and be out and about as an American there. Um, but it's, it's, it's just so weird to watch her go and have conversations with people there right now. Yeah, to actually in be some... speaking to Taliban soldiers as they're taking over the city and asking them <laughs> right. questions about what the future holds for the people who are going to be now under under the Taliban rule instead of the government they had before and what that means. I mean, in particular, she's concerned about about that the Afghan women who are going to be under Taliban rule and under Islamic yeah. law when they weren't before, because that is a very big change. Yeah, yeah, rightfully so. Often they're not... In, in a lot of those countries, and, and this varies so much in different Muslim countries, places like uh, Iran, at least you used to be able to go to, women could go to college and they could dress uh, more or less how they wanted to. Uh, and that's varied as different factions have vied for control there. Um, Syria was another one that had uh, secularized quite a bit, quite a degree, or rather was not enforcing the, the strict standards that you see in some places. Um, but here, you'd expect them, the the... Taliban track record is such that you'd expect them to to be enforcing the strictest dress codes, and they have a very clear standard that they've they've enforced and and expectations of what women are supposed to do in society and not supposed to do in society, and that does not include getting an education beyond a very limited mm -hmm. education mm -hmm. necessary for the duties that they think are their lot. Yeah, and so there are there's obviously a lot of questions, and of course the Taliban is in this moment of victory going to be is going to be generous at least in uh in words you know what i mean, Rhetoric, I, mean right. I mean the taliban right. they they've got you know they're they're tweeting they're they're you know reporting with al jazeera about about what they're going to be doing and and how um you know benevolent their government is going to be uh -huh. and which is which is good i mean it, it would be really bad if they were saying the opposite you know if they were saying you know welcome welcome to hell everyone you know it's going to get nasty yeah, from here yes. on out then we'd be really concerned but but it's not surprising that they're saying those things because that's what you'd expect a reasonable occupying force to say you know what i mean you don't want to right. you don't want to have people rioting you want a peaceful transition of power as much as possible and so you say those things to to calm people down but what the government's actually going to look like once they have complete control because just because they've they've taken over afghanistan does not mean they have complete control does not mean they have a working government it does not mean any of those things it just means they've defeated the other government they still yeah. have to establish and then maintain control and once they do that you'll see how they actually plan on ruling. Yes. And it, and it yes. may not, and it may be just as benevolent as they said, but we don't know. We won't know until it happens. Yeah. And what, what's interesting about that is that I didn't expect them to have the rhetoric right, right? The rhetoric may or may not reflect what they, what they're going to do. But the fact that they have it, the, the diplomatic part of it down, that this is what we should say and a relative, a relatively uniform message even from low-level soldiers. Uh-huh. And 
saying what the expectations are going to be, uh, how true it is, is, is another question. But that says a lot about how far they've come. Yeah, it says it says a lot about how organized they are. It says a lot yes. about as an explanation of how they were able to take over Afghanistan so quickly, because this is not just a ragtag group of, of soldiers living in the wilderness. This is a well-organized right. army. I mean, this is, I mean, as you said, the fact that, that low level commanders are saying the same things that they are mm -hmm. saying to Al Jazeera, you know, when they're talking, when you've got an actual spokesperson who's meeting with the media and they're saying similar things is impressive. That's a, it is, it, it is no small thing. Go try and organize a group and get them all on the same page. Mm -hmm. Good mm -hmm. luck. Mm -hmm. and, and maybe their, uh, their more authoritative religious structure allows for better uniformity of message, but whatever the case is, the message is getting out and it's being, it's being repeated and followed at least for now, which says, uh, says wonders about the organization. Now, as far as Afghanistan goes, of course, the debate is not whether or not they're organized or how barbaric they are. Obviously, their their standards in the past of how they treat women and other things are barbaric by modern standards. That's not what's interesting here. What's interesting here to us is what America should be doing and how well they've done it. And there's two really two distinct questions here related to this. One is should we be there? And this is this is a 20-year-old problem. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. is not a problem that happened today. This is not a problem created by Joe Biden. This is a problem that is as old as our invasion and is related to our capacity to nation build and to maintain other places and to, I don't know, support other governments. It's 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 unclear where one principle ends and another begins and, and what, what exactly the mission is and those kind of things. That's all, that's all very hazy to me. But should we be there? And if we are there, how do we do it effectively is, is I think two very different questions. Mm -hmm. And most people have been discussing the effectiveness of the withdrawal. Most people, uh, my understanding was something like 70% of Americans want us out of Afghanistan. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they talk about endless war and they talk about, you know, American interests there and all these other things. And it's really, it's, it's something of a mess. It's something of a mess because there are so many different purposes. There are so many different goals and there's so much rhetoric that isn't quite accurate about what's happening there. Uh, and, and as I've been listening to various debates to bit today and, uh, over the course of the last couple of days as this has been going down. I've been surprised at how shaky my own opinion is on some of this. <laughs> my, how, you know, about what I, I think I've used, I've described Afghanistan in ways that I think I would, I would take back at this point that I would say, you know, that's, they're right. Some of the people saying, wait, 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 this is not an endless war have made some valid points. And uh, where to start in this mess? Where do we start untangling this, Brad? So, what do you think? So it sounds it sounds to me, Dan, like like you're saying that that after looking at it, after seeing the disastrous results of of the U.S. leaving Afghanistan, that that you're more inclined to say since we're already here, maybe we should have stayed. Maybe we should have stayed in Afghanistan in order to maintain peace, in order to maintain a relatively decent government, and that wouldn't have been the worst thing in the world. That sounds like what you're hinting at, but you don't want to say, am I, am I, am I close? 
Well, that's well, that, well, that's somewhat somewhat of the direction. The reason I don't want to state it specifically like that is I, I feel like I'd have to walk up to that a, a variety of reasons before I got to that point. Mm-hmm. But w- what I would say is this is a, is a beginning point here for this discussion. I don't think what we were doing in Afghanistan constitutes a war, mm-hmm. and I've described it that way. I described it that yeah, way in large part in because I don't. Yeah, that we have a twenty-year war in Afghanistan. I would say that's not accurate now as I've looked into more of the details of, of what's been happening there and what exactly we've been doing and not been doing, the kind of casualty rate, those the, you know, what kind of skirmishes and encounters are actually happening, how many soldiers we actually have there. These kind of details, I would say we have not been waging war in Afghanistan for 20 years, mm-hmm. which is different than what I, how I would have described it just a week ago. Mm-hmm. I would have said, we've been at war in Afghanistan for 20 years. In mm-hmm. fact, I think we've said it on this podcast. I think I've said that, yeah, yeah. those words. No, I, I, I remember that, yeah. Uh, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe it as a war anymore for a variety of reasons. One of them is that it, it was certainly an invasion initially, mm-hmm. right? To get, to get to where we were, there was a war mm-hmm. and maybe we dominated that war to a point where it wasn't particularly, you know, uh, dangerous to us. Although we've certainly lost, uh, many people in Afghanistan, relatively speaking, it wasn't much of a fight, but if you look at like, like we had 5,000 troops there, I believe was the, the most recent number that was then withdrawn. Uh, it, it's within, at least within a couple thousand of that. And that's been roughly what we've had for a, a long time now. That seems like a lot to me, but it's not a lot it's, for America to have that many. It's not, it's almost, it's almost nothing. Was it, was it really that low recently? I believe it was 5,000 when they withdrew and that now, now I think there's 7,000 it, it, this uh, this is happening so fast mm-hmm. as mm-hmm. we're talking about mm-hmm. it that, I, that we're probably going to get details wrong even for now. And when you listen to this, it's absolutely going to be different. But I I know that right now we are sending in more troops to clean up the mess than we had in there, and we're sending in something like seven thousand. Yeah, see that's crazy. I would have assumed that yeah. that we had that a year ago in Afghanistan or six months ago in Afghanistan we had more than than five thousand troops. But but maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe I am just straight up wrong. But I would have assumed that that we had more. I know that that over over the course of this year we have been gradually, you know, gradually pulling out the number of forces that we have. So maybe that's the number you're talking about with that five thousand. Is it's that's what we got down to. But at that point, that wasn't that wasn't our true occupying force that we've had there for a significant period of time. No, you're right. You're right. I'm looking at numbers. I pulled up a few numbers. I'm seeing 13,000, 16,000. Yeah, and I'm sure it's varied across time. That makes a little bit more sense because, yeah, because there's, yeah. yeah. there's no way that, that 6,000 would be enough to do to do anything. But but even 16,000, right. 13,000 is not, is not a crazy amount. But, I mean, part of that is because for a long period of time now, these troops have been working with the government of Afghanistan in collaboration that they've been they've been trying to train and create a working Afghanistan army so that they're no longer needed you know and so the mm-hmm. idea is is that those troops are not are not the power in Afghanistan they're just there as a resource for the Afghanistan government and and that's something that I that that a lot of people have been asking as the United States left Afghanistan because the idea wasn't that we were abandoning Afghanistan to, to fend for its own. The idea was that we've been in Afghanistan for 20 years. 
We've helped train them. We've spent a lot of money on resources, on weapons, on tools for this army to have, not to mention the billions of dollars worth of training that we've invested in this Afghanistan army. And so now when we leave, we're not leaving them with nothing. We're leaving them with with a very large and very well-trained army that can now take care of itself. Right, with advanced weapons. With advanced weapons, and there's no... There's no problem here. There's no there's no sacrificing anything. Our troops get to go home and the Afghanistan government gets to govern itself in peace. You know, and it seems pretty straightforward. So the real question, the real question that I think should be asked is, well, not the real question. There are a lot of questions here. <laughs> but at least one viable question is is what went wrong in terms of in terms of that, in terms of that plan because that plan obviously did not work at all. It did not work at all because if the Afghanistan government had a working, you know, 100,000 strong plus army that was trained well and had modern weapons and was well organized, then even if the Taliban were this incredible army and well organized and et cetera, the things we talked about before, it doesn't change the fact that they couldn't have done this and done it this quickly. You know what I mean? This is – this is – the Taliban went through Afghanistan like there was no resistance. You know what I mean? Like there, like yes, there was yes. no government. Like there, there was, was no serious, no serious army. Yeah. yeah. And so so clearly that that army on paper didn't exist in reality. In fact, I, I read a, a really interesting article from The Atlantic titled What We Got Wrong in Afghanistan. And it's it's written by by someone who was actually deployed over there. I believe I believe he's been deployed over in the Middle East a couple of times. He's been involved in a lot of these operations and he goes down and he talks about what actually happened over there. And he talks about how how there were so many problems and the problems were were many fold. You know, the problems number 1 is you have you have soldiers who are going over there on on rotation. Do you know what I mean? There, it's not like we sent over sixteen thousand soldiers twenty years ago and they stayed for those twenty years. <laughs> no, they're they're constantly rotating in and out, and so the people who are training the army weren't staying with them over time. You know, some would come in, then they would come out, then they would come in, then they would come out. And so much of the training and the organization was ad hoc. You know, they were they were making it up as they went. And there were a lot of a lot of serious problems with that. Um, that's that's an interesting problem. Let me inter- interject yeah, a few thoughts interject. on that. It, because uh, obviously, you would think that if the U.S. military was training someone on military issues, that the training we would offer would be second to none. Right. Right. That that there would be a clear plan of what we were going to teach them. There would be competent instruction. There would be, you know, effective drilling, weapons, the, the, the whatever learning modules needed to be developed could be developed so that you could have as efficient and as effective a training regimen as possible that would then make, you know, obviously you can't make a, you can't turn a, someone who's never fought in a battle into a, a great soldier overnight, but you could do as much as you could do, as much as any country could do. I feel like, I, you would assume that our military did it and that it would be standardized so quickly that troop turnover would not matter at all. 
that you would not that that the changeover of troops mm-hmm. would be, yeah you'd expect would be that. a non-factor. That's what I would expect. Yeah, yeah. So 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 there. So you're you're absolutely right. So there's a couple things he talks about. He talks about the fact that that you know the tactical training turning an individual into a soldier is one thing, and it's something that the United States military is very good at. You know, you can train someone how to use a weapon. You can train someone how to work with a platoon, and they were in fact very good at doing that in Afghanistan. But what they struggled with was the infrastructure, was creating everything back from that soldier that makes up an army. And and this is something that that I think is really interesting, something that that I forget about all the that time. Is fascinating. Even that is though fascinating. even though I've read dozens of books about about military both fictional and non-fiction about how when you're talking about war, when you're talking about any kind of battle, 90% of who wins that battle has nothing to do with with the soldiers and the guns right there in the battle but everything to do with everything that went up to it you know you have your supply lines you have you have your logistics you have your your information knowing where the enemy is knowing where you are knowing how quickly you can get there knowing what resources you'll be able to bring there all of these things all of these logistical things that make up the military that have nothing to do with how well a platoon can can carry their rifles and point and shoot at what they need to. You know what I mean? There's so much more that goes into it. And then he goes on and talks about how with Afghanistan, though, it's more than that because they don't just need an army. They need a police force because the the threats they were facing are insurgents, are people who are already within the country, not an army coming from another country and attacking. And that's a very different situation that requires different different training and different understanding that in many cases the military didn't have the resources for. The military is not trained in in policing. You know, that's not their area of expertise. <laughs> yeah. And yet the military yeah. was the ones are were the ones who were assigned to train the police officers. And so he talks about how there were there were many serious problems and and so much of it is because it was it was political you know what i mean you need to go in and get quick results and those results yeah. need to be on paper they don't need to be to be backed up and so what you have is you go in and you recruit these soldiers so you can say hey we've got over 100,000 soldiers and you can see them marching here they're well armed but when push comes to shove they're not actually a real army, and there's so many things behind the scenes that are just simply missing. And one of those things he talks about as well is the actual government structure, because it's the government that has to use that army. And if that government is corrupt, if that government doesn't have the resources to supply that army, then that army disappears as soon as the resources are gone. You know what I mean? Yes. Uh, yeah, a couple thoughts on that. Is your Some really interesting things there. Um, if you train well, – we'll, we'll start with the police thing. There are military personnel who act as police within the military. Uh, obviously, yeah, yeah, you've got to keep order police, and they're going yeah. to be – yeah, yeah, there's going to be problems. That's going to be incredibly – that that will have some overlap with normal policing. But if you were to ask a cop in, say, New York what it would be like, what police skills someone would need in Kabul, right, Kabul, mm-hmm. you – it would be a very different world. How you would function and how you would do everything would be very different. It can be different from state to state. From with that kind of a cultural shift, the the military police skills, it does make sense to me that the, the very little of it would actually well, be directly and, transferable. And, and really, 
what you don't need is is a beat cop from New York City. What you need is is a branch of the FBI, someone who has experience dealing with with larger issues. You know what I mean? Yeah. The the New York City cop yes. yeah, is yeah, yeah. is very yeah. often not dealing with large organized criminal organizations, unlike the right. FBI, which specializes in that. You know, because that's the right. kind of organization right, right. you need if what you're dealing with is large scale criminal organizations. Right, which is what, which is how that uh, the government, as it was, was supposed to be viewing the Taliban, essentially, with some kind of large-scale criminal organization. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, it's such a fascinating thought of what of trying to think of the institutions that would have to be created in order to maintain a government and an army that that, that would be that completely seems to us so yeah yeah that would be self-sufficient. Um, you would have to you would have to create something like an FBI. You'd have to have some kind of organization that with with the data and communication and the the structure and the lack of corruption <laughs> i say lack of corruption as if that's a that's a thing going for us these days <laughs> but at least you know uh not not so corrupt that they're playing for these same organizations which which obviously happens in police and in fbi at times um but the beyond all of that the big one that you, you mentioned that really sticks out to me is is the economics of it you cannot take a nation teach them to fight like our U.S. military fights and expect them to be able to do it themselves. Mm-hmm. You can't because they cannot fund it. They cannot fund it. They cannot maintain it. This was one of the specific points I heard about, uh, specific problems I heard from our withdrawal that was really interesting to me that makes a lot more sense as I'm starting to think economically. They, Their Air Force, they were trained to use their Air Force in similar ways to how we use ours, mm-hmm. which is for intel, air support, different things. Um, without that, in a lot of ways, they're blind. And when we left, due to the, the way we did it and the, how, what we allowed and didn't allow them to use as we left, they had some planes, they had theoretically enough things to do it themselves. But, uh, I heard somebody claim that they lacked the, the technological skills to maintain and fully operate them. Specifically to maintain them. And among the other decisions that Biden made, Biden forbid any contractors from being there, which is what they would have used. Yeah, they would have used, you know, American It's often what the U.S. military uses. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, To to do the things that they couldn't and to continue to train them on things. And those were also pulled. Those were also uh, prevented from from helping. Interesting. Which leaves them in a position where – it, at least according to this claim, I don't know how true this is. So much of this is things that you can't verify right now, right? You're hearing a lot of things and uh, the truth will out eventually, hopefully. Um, but if that's true, that would explain why they had no air support immediately, why they were not able to do a lot of things. And if you were built to depend on that, if you're built to function mm-hmm. like we function, mm-hmm. you're going to have immediately immediate problems there. Mm-hmm. I mean, you'd think that all they need to do is actually is just field that army of theirs, which is way bigger than the forces attacking them, at least on paper. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> on paper, we're talking three to one, uh, at least, and maybe as much as six to one. And and just have them stand at the edge of the city and fire back, right? <laughs> it's not, it's not, com- it's not complicated in our heads, but that's, it but is complicated. It, it's it's way not more how than it works. That. That's not how it works. You, you don't just press a button and the army shows up. That's not how this works at all. As you were saying, the political infrastructure to, to actually direct it and have some kind of clear command chain and have some people that make decisions that are then listened to 
the the basic functioning of the military, the economic support to to supply and maintain these things. As uh, does anyone think that Afghanistan has an economy comparable to ours? That could even even to scale, right? Even even remotely close that could fund that those kind of operations. I mean, we've given them most of the technology and weapons that they have, and now that the now that uh, the Taliban have mm-hmm. at this point mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, military bases that they've just walked through and picked up what was discarded and what was left in a hurry. It's a it's a difficult question. I I I heard someone someone asked how long would we have to be there before they were ready, and they said eight hundred years. <laughs> and and it, at first that seems like a random number um and they were basing that off of how long it took from the magna carta of great britain to present day basically right? it was a plus 100 years <laughs> because what they were thinking was how long would it take for them to develop naturally the kind of political ideas that allows you to have the kind of economy that we have and then the kind of prosperity and thinking and organization that we have. And so obviously that's tongue in cheek, uh-huh. but, but it also has a point. It also, there's also a good point to it that we, we don't see all the things that are underneath what makes our, our country work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, it's interesting because basically the argument, the argument that you're making that others have made is that, is that if you're not changing everything that's underneath, you know, if you're, if you're only making surface changes, then if they're not supported inherently by what's underneath, then they're going to collapse. And so, so what that means is that if you were going to build some kind of, some kind of security force or, or system for, you know, the government of Afghanistan, it would have to work within their, current system and and it's it's interesting because could the u.s train them on that is the, well it's yeah. it's an excellent question but the, the other question is is this is not the first time this is not the first time the united states has done this it's not the first time it's it's backfired it's something that we've continued to try to do and it's something that that we try to do in so many aspects of society is we force things to be the way we want them to be, the way they are for us. Why can't we just make it that way for other people? You know, an, an excellent example of that is you have people who are who are starving in other countries, and so you just airdrop food and water to those countries, and that will fix the problem. And I'm not saying that that's bad, but I am saying that it's more complicated than that. You can't just airdrop food and water and have all their problems disappear. You know, you you have serious problems. You know, a common problem is that you will have... You, you will have criminal organizations that will spring up in order to collect those resources and use those resources to establish power. You know, that's just one example of how there's an un, unintended side effect of of your humanitarianism. And here yeah, a second in a, one related to the oh sorry, oh, I, oh, I cut you off, but a, a second one related to the economics of it is that is that uh, when rice is abruptly free or is free in spurts, it destroys the rice economy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The people there that are trying to grow rice and trying to make a profit off of it and trying to sell it and trying to trying to build up the kind of infrastructure and, and businesses that would fund their that would fuel their independence are often crushed by our charitable donations. Yeah, yeah, the, where abruptly all of a sudden rice is free for a year. Well, what happens to the farm? The farm goes under. Yeah, and then if the rice stops, then you're in way more trouble yeah, than you right. were before. Right. No, and you and, and Afghanistan's not not that different. You know, they're 
They're, they're supplied all of these resources, supplied all this training, supplied all this military support, which is all fantastic. And so they look fantastic. They're doing great. Then all those things dry up and now they're left on their own, but they don't have those things anymore that they were relying on. And they're in a worse place than they were before, which is, which is definitely something that, that, that needs to be addressed, but that doesn't answer, you know, that that's kind of addressing that second question you said, Dan, about, about now that, now that you're here, what do you do? You know what I mean? Now, now, mm-hmm. you know, Joe Biden becomes president. He's in charge of the military. He's, he has a large degree of control over what we do in Afghanistan. You know, he may not be able to get that infrastructure bill passed. He may not be able to get minimum wage for the United States, but he can control what happens in Afghanistan. Right. And he is, he is put in a position where he has this, this 20 year occupation as it were in Afghanistan and that is vastly unpopular with the American public and what do you do what do you do in that situation where both parties in many cases believe that we should withdraw you know what do you do what do you yeah. do it's Camp- campaign promise from Obama campaign promise from Trump I mean, these are things that it's vastly popular on mm-hmm. both sides. Mm-hmm. And and Biden actually follows through with that promise and is right. going is going through political <laughs> heck for it. Like he is he is <laughs> yes. under fire like you wouldn't believe. The number of articles I've seen on CNN bashing Biden is insane. Yeah. This is the is. most negative coverage Biden has ever gotten. It's crazy. That's what that's what led me to look more into it. Honestly, this would have kind of blown over. Well, at least until the disaster started happening. But early on, I was starting to see these kind of articles. I was like, Wait, what? What is this? Why? Why the hate? Mm-hmm. Why the mm-hmm. <laughs> for something that's so clearly popular? Uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting. You're right that this. Uh, I heard someone say that this will be Biden's Bay of Pigs invasion. Right, the the Bay of Pigs. The uh, uh, I. I don't even know what that is a historical reference to, but I know it tanks somebody's presidency. <laughs> it's uh, it's Cuba. It's when it's, it's Cuba. Thank you. That's like that's what I thought, but I was that, like that totally be worse if I threw that out there and was wrong than if I. <laughs> I'm, I'm here to back you up, Dan. It was Cuba. I appreciate it. Your American history is way better than mine. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that's so sad. <laughs> Sorry, I shouldn't have undercut you like that. Was um, that uh, no? Now all I'm thinking in my head is uh, we didn't start the fire by Billy Joel. That's what I've got. That's that's the sum that, total of my that, that's historical your, that's knowledge. That's your history. Uh, Not true. Um, it's it's such an interesting question. If I'm Biden, I get in and I say I say I've made the promise like every president before me since Bush, and <laughs> I say that like there's a long list. The two before me. <laughs> And I look at this and I go, look, at this point, we can reduce the number to 5,000. And it's still stable. Still stable. Let's take a look at our other military interests around the world. We've got bases all over the place. They cost us some money, but if it's, if it's relatively stable, and I mean, Afghanistan's not as stable as these other ones. It's probably the least stable of them. But it's, it, relatively speaking, it, it's not that bad at this point. Germany. Japan, South Korea. Go ahead and guess if you're listening to this, how many troops we have in those places. Just think about it for a second. What would be a reasonable guess? We had, we had 16, 18,000 in Afghanistan not too long ago. 
how many troops would you say are in Germany? Is Germany a pressing threat right now? Is, is Japan under attack? Were we, you know, obviously this is World War II. If you think World War II plus a uh, Cold War, mm-hmm. yeah, why, are we in, why are we War. in South Korea? The Korean War. Yes. The Korean War and the, and our rivalry with uh, Russia and South Korea and North Korea, that whole thing. We've got bases there. How many soldiers do we have, Brad? So Japan, we have just under 54,000. Um, South Korea, we have 27,000. Germany, we have 35,000. And uh, and Italy, even. Italy, we've got uh, 12,500, <laughs> which you didn't mention, but I thought they should get an honorable mention. mention because they, too, were an Axis power and thus are entitled to some of our troops. Yeah. If you're not familiar with some of the history around World War II there and why there are troops there, places like Japan in particular, it's interesting. In Japan, we basically forbid them from having a military. We are like, you know what? Maybe you'd be mad about those bombs we dropped on you. <laughs> I'm, I'm speculating a little bit about our reasoning here. Maybe, maybe vengeance would come our way for firebombing Tokyo. Uh, we, we basically forbid them from having a military and said, no, we're going to handle your security concerns. And so if we're going to do that, they're right next to China. We're going to have a large, large military presence there. And we do. We have 54,000 people there. And then over time, Japan became an ally and realized that this relationship was the best thing that could ever happen to them <laughs> and said, you know what? You keep your troops here as long as you want. You maintain our defense as long as you want. We don't want to fight China. You fight China. You you deter China from fighting us because China has no interest in fighting a war with the United States. So as long as we're under your protection, we're good. We can spend <laughs> all our money on on economic things. It's it's crazy. It, the Italy one blew my mind. We've got how many? 14,000 troops in Italy? 12,535. 12,500 in, in Italy. As of when this was updated. Yeah, that's that's surprising. And Germany, is Germany a threat? Is Germany about to be invaded? I was about to say, Germany is both neither a threat and is in no way threatened, threatened. by anyone else. Yeah. yeah. So either way you look at it, either as a, a peacekeeping mission or as a mission to protect Germany so Germany doesn't require a large a large army, neither of those are, are justified. And yet we have them because... Because it's it's like you it's like you said before with the eight hundred years. If you're going to maintain something, you basically have to do it forever. <laughs> yeah, it's it's strange. Now, if you said to me, you know, if, if, consider it this way: Would I prefer to have thirty five thousand troops in Germany, or say twenty five thousand troops in Germany and ten over in Afghanistan, ten thousand troops? Mm-hmm. What's now, what's the difference here? What's the, it's, it's weird to me. If you're looking at Afghanistan as a, as a perpetual war, then ending the war makes sense. But if it's just another place where we have lots of military soldiers and in this one, every once in a while, something goes wrong, right? If something bad happens, somebody's killed. At this point, it's, it's very infrequent. Then the, what's the difference? Really, what's the difference? We had less troops there than we had in in Germany. No, and I and less troops. And I think you you did answer is that is that yes, they're infrequent, but they do happen enough. There are enough engagements that there are casualties, and every time 
you know, a soldier dies overseas, the question is mm-hmm. raised, mm-hmm. what are they doing there? What are we doing there? You know, no one no one ever asks, what are we doing in Germany? Because no troops are dying in combat there. That's true. No no true. troops are dying in combat in Germany. No troops are dying in combat in Japan. When was the last time you read a you know an article about an IED that went off in Japan and you know killed a bunch of US soldiers? It hasn't happened. It hasn't mm-hmm. happened mm-hmm. and so we don't care. And by we I mean the American populace. You know, it's funny because the reason Biden did this is the exact same reason he's getting lambasted for it. He did it because the people wanted him to, you know what I mean? I mean, I'm sure Biden right now is is fairly annoyed because he's like, I, I did exactly what you wanted me to do, and I'm getting publicly skewered just for it. Hammered. You know? Just tell me what you want, and I'll do it. You know, I mean, Biden is the popular president. Biden's campaigns, Biden's everything was just built around what he thought the American people wanted. Yeah, yeah, and... I, I mean, some kudos definitely needs to go his way for being able, for carrying it through, and the others didn't. And I and if you want a sense of why the others didn't withdraw, I think what happened is a good sense of mm-hmm. of, of what happened. I said I would withdraw. Should I do that? Speaking to his military commanders, if you do that, the place will collapse. Now they thought it would be slower than it did, mm-hmm. but they were they were pretty confident that eventually it would collapse. Well, that probably wouldn't look bad. Look good on for me. Let's let's pass. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> we'll, it's, we'll leave uh, that for the next president. We'll leave that for the next guy. And it looks bad. It looks really bad. And Biden's getting the heat for it. And and so as we're talking about this, you know, we're 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 speaking in a in a lot of questions, a lot of, a lot of ideas. We're not making a lot of concrete statements, and I think that's I think that's wise on our part, Dan, because. <laughs> Well, good. I thought I was just confused. Because if, if you've got what any make. concrete statement from this, it's it's incredibly messy. I mean, one of the reasons, and you know, we've talked about foreign policy before, and and when it comes to should we be in Afghanistan, we are we are of the opinion that no, we never should have been there. Just to be clear, in terms of concrete stances, there's one concrete stance I am very yeah. comfortable making, and mm-hmm. that's that we shouldn't have been there in the first place, hands down. And one of the reasons we shouldn't have as been an there, occupying force. as an occupying force, right. and one of the reasons we shouldn't be there in the first place is because of what's happening now, because we've created a government that relies on us, and therefore when we leave, we cause their downfall, which means that we are responsible for the collapse of the government of Afghanistan. You know what I mean? That inaction is in its way a form of action, that by us leaving, we are responsible for that. You know, we... We have to take onus of that. Yes, we we built something mm-hmm. there that was not going to stand, and when it when it falls, some of the blame should fall on us. And and yeah, and so one of the reasons that that foreign policy is so messy, and one of the reasons we encourage staying out of it is because it's complicated and it's messy, and it results in in situations like this. Yeah, there was a speech of Ron Paul that went viral. <laughs> It's been resurrected from like 2012 or 2013 that you can go listen to where he's like, what if, what if it's all going to be a waste? And at the end, it's all going to collapse. And you're like, oh, look at that. Here it is. Uh, sounding prophetic at this point. Um, you mentioned the, the should we be there at all thing. If, if someone comes and kills a bunch of Americans, as happened with 9-11, and we go and we hunt down those people. 
that's very different than if we go and we invade Afghanistan, occupy it, mm-hmm. start trying to build something. Absolutely. It's, 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 these are, there is no, these are not the same thing. Now they've been sold as the same thing. They've been sold as we occupy there so we don't get attacked by terrorists at home. Uh, that, that chain of reasoning is simply not true. It's not true. In fact, there's a lot of reason to think that it is because of our occupations. It is because of our, our meddling and things that we end up getting attacked at home. And you can look into the motivation for 9-11 for, for some insight into that, the people and what they, what they, why they said they did what they did, uh, the, the people who were involved, uh, Osama bin Laden himself and why, what motivated him. These kind of things were, were what's called blowback because of our foreign policy. They were, they were, not that we caused them. We didn't make them attack us, right? They, what they did was evil. You go into a, a place full of civilians and random people and you blow it up. You are acting in the most vile and evil way you can. But the people want to cause us, to, want to make us suffer if we make them suffer is extremely predictable. And that's one of the questions that, uh, Clarissa Ward is asking on the ground, like, what are your, what are your plans for America going forward? <laughs> Which is a, a bold thing to ask as an American reporter mm-hmm. uh, to people mm-hmm. who just, who have been from their perspective, you know, uh, uh, pushed around and oppressed by us and yeah. then who are now rising to power and now have our weapons. And <laughs> like they have, they have every reason to want to retaliate against us, though it wouldn't be wise for them. But anyway, it's it, it's an interesting question, and uh, yeah, while I am I agree completely with Brad's statement that I don't think we should have been there when we are there, and when the resources are committed in things, I can see more and more why people go, well, you should just stay there. Mm-hmm. You should just stay there, mm-hmm. except that you're going to be there for ten years. Mm-hmm. The casualties have gone down to a not a comfortable level. There isn't a comfortable level of casualties, but. But if you accept so much of the, of the premises of our military and why they do what they do, and then, it, and that we should be helping people around the world, then, then helping here seems much more useful than helping in Germany. Mm-hmm. Right? We're conveying a lot of resources in Germany to be there and to maintain a military presence there that are, that are not being used to help people per se. So it's a, uh, yeah, at, at the practical level, I could see a, I could see a position I would be in where I don't have the power to make the call of whether we stay, where I would argue that we increase the soldiers there. But if you, if you can direct foreign policy, if you can say, how involved should we be in the world around us? You should be getting out, right? You should be, there's no reason to be there. There, there is room, I think, for, there is room for private action in this sphere that doesn't happen in the world today. I think there's room for a, a kind of military like presence and effect on the world through private interactions that are not, not common. You see some of them in things like, uh, like helping, uh, slaves, uh, you know, sex slaves and things around the world. Uh, there are organizations that are, that are basically military organizations mm-hmm. that are private, that are, that go in. Yeah, there's not, there's not very common. There's not common, right, right. They're not common because the U.S. has assumed a lot of the, a lot of those duties and the U.S.'s foreign policy is so expansive that it seems like we, anytime you're like, soldiers should help someone, you know, people with, people should fight bad guys. We think, 
what should the U.S. military be doing? So, so as 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 I'm listening to you talk, Dan, I'm thinking more about it, and I'm thinking about about us being there, and I and I'm thinking about the responsibility that we have after being there for 20 years, and and my conclusion is very simple. It's that. There are things that we could do that would be effective and that might be a good idea. I just can't see us doing those things the way our political system is set up. I can't see us ever making the right call. You know what I mean? Whether it comes to <laughs> Afghanistan yeah. or anything else, I don't see how we're going to make the right call when we have the political climate that we do today. You know, because maybe, maybe you're right. Maybe the best thing we could have done for Afghanistan and for us is to have a significant drawdown of the number of troops in Afghanistan while still maintaining the financial and also structural support for the Afghanistan government and military in order to help them stay in power. You know what I mean? Because in many ways, our boots on the ground were just one small part of of the resources and the 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 training and the the logistical support support that we were supplying and you could draw down our military presence while maintaining a lot of those things you know you could have brought in more you could have brought in you know whole teams of FBI consultants to help them with that and you could have brought in teams to help them set up and maintain infrastructure for the military without risking many lives at at least you know what i mean but mm-hmm. But there was no there was no political need for that. There was no political reason for that, and so it never happened. There was no political reason to maintain a small force because all we cared about was is the US in Afghanistan in Afghanistan or is it not? You know, it's a yes, no answer when sometimes the world is more complicated. And I'm not even saying that's the best option. I don't know enough about Afghanistan. All yeah, I'm likewise you know, I've got the information I've been gathering over the last few days as we've seen this change take place. And obviously, the Taliban taking over is not something we're happy about. But I don't know enough about the previous Afghanistan government that we were supporting. I don't know enough about what it was like for people on the streets. And that's yeah. kind of my point is that is that the situation is set up where I'm voting for someone in a two-party election both of which have very strange and arbitrary ideas about what should happen in Afghanistan. And so so both me, the one making the decision through my vote, and the president actually making the decision who has these arbitrary ideas that are based off of what he thinks that I want as a voter. And that's how we're going to decide what happens for these people that we have almost no understanding. I mean, you can talk to a lot of people who actually have served in Afghanistan and and the things that they did and the help they were able to provide or they weren't able to provide and what it was like for the people on the ground. And it's a very different story and it's a much more colorful and a much more nuanced story than anything that's being presented about Afghanistan, including what we're saying in this podcast, that we don't have the ability to cover the scope of what's going on there and that's a serious a serious problem in my opinion it is when when ultimately the power to decide is is decide what happens in afghanistan is through elections and the decisions ultimately fall on the shoulders of the president 
who is not not a military person, not a his. It's it's odd. It's really odd. I've thought I've thought about this before at length. I think the way that the government runs makes the military incompetent in almost every circumstance except one. And it's if we are invaded. If we are invaded, the government could effectively manage fighting that war. And it's partially because the interests would be clear and yeah, they'd be virtually the universal. Would be aligned. And how they fought and the, their goals and objectives, everything would be perfectly clear in those circumstances. At least relatively speaking. Yeah, but the farther, the farther away you get from that, the more muddy it becomes. Right. Do we have an obligation with the force that we pay for to defend ourselves, to support and sustain the Afghani people? With, with money provided to the military through taxes to obtain goals established by politicians who change in and out to i mean what like you were saying what are the odds that we make that president biden makes the most effective decision mm -hmm. it's it's, mm -hmm. it's it's virtually random it, it hinges on the whims of the people in so many ways if not if not in necessarily him trying to please the people which i, I think he is trying to do <laughs> like you said but even if he weren't the fact that he got elected would reflect to a large degree the the views of the people and how and how uh you know, what would, what the people want. And all of that leads to a system in which tactical decisions are not well made. The incentives just don't align. It's too confused. It's too divorced from the situation. Now, if the Afghani people were deciding what our soldiers should be doing, which is what the, theoretically they're doing with their own army, right? Their, mm -hmm. their interests in protecting themselves are supposedly, uh, line up well yeah, which which once again goes back to how good of a government did afghanistan really have and yep. i'm not sure it was a very good one and right. that is it might have taken a serious years. underlying problem yeah. as well right right we how much of it is literally us just running it how much is this is this essentially a colony in the sense that that we control it um yeah i don't know it, it's difficult it's difficult i would which this is this is in some ways in the in the, the decision making process you you suggested we've been discussing here is one of the main reasons I think the U.S. government should be involved militarily in almost nothing ever. Nowhere, no places. Close the bases. You know, if you want to have uh, bases in places where there are allies, where there are security threats. You know, Japan might be a good one to keep bases in. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. Those kind of things are up for debate. Germany is not. Germany. <laughs> and maybe that's a question of cost expenditure at this point. You know, how much would it cost to move all the things that we have there to a better location? I, I don't know. I don't know. But as far as, <laughs> as far as our interests are concerned, as far as protecting America goes, I think we waste an absurd amount of money. No, which is absurd which amount. is which is why I go back to the the political incentives because the reason we're still in Germany is because the political incentives because yeah. if it costs you know if it costs you know the equivalent you know we spend x amount of dollars every year to keep our troops in Germany. Let's say it costs four times that amount to get them out. 
then in the moment, it's a terrible financial idea and can be enough to jeopardize someone's re-election, even though in the long run, it'll be way more cost-effective for the United States in general. But because we live, especially in terms of presidents, in a four-year cycle, anything that takes longer than four years is a serious problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. Any Anything that you say you want to do that you can't at least start in the four years and see the positive effect, politically, it's a very dangerous thing to do. Politics is such a garbage system for making important decisions. It, it really is. In all but the most clear cases, politics will botch the question because their interests do not align with the actual reality of the ground, one of them being money, right? one of them being the cost. Government cannot be cost-effective. They cannot respond to cost incentives because they're, because ultimately they can print more money. <laughs> ultimately, ultimately, it doesn't matter that much. If the people vote for it, they have to do it. If the people mm-hmm. don't, for it, don't vote for it, it can't be done. Yeah, and there's that disconnect is one of the real problems. Yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, a, it's a massive problem. And in running in a, a military, it's a, which is one of the most expensive things you can do. There's a reason we spend such a ridiculous amount of money compared to the rest of the world on the military. And yet, yet politicians will talk about how our guns are, are not in working order, right? The maintenance things are not getting paid. We're, our half of our airplanes are actually not, not combat worthy and so on. And I'm, I'm throwing, I'm just throwing out random numbers, mm-hmm. but that's the kind of things I hear all the time that actually we're not prepared for a war because most of our stuff doesn't work because we're not, we don't have enough money. It's like, well, where, where is it going? How, how, how we, we have more money going into the military than any other country in the world. And it's not close. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, it's frustrating. It's definitely frustrating. And, and as we look back at, at Afghanistan and what's happening here, kind of have a few a few final thoughts first of all i don't think joe biden is the villain here if anything joe biden is is the scapegoat for for what's happening the american people wanted something the american people got what they wanted they were upset with how it actually turned out and so they're blaming someone for it and who they're blaming is is joe biden even though even though like i said most people wanted him to do it including us you know what i mean if you had asked us you know a month ago should we get out of afghanistan we would have said yes you know what i mean and which is why you know and anyways anyways but it's it's more complicated than that and and maybe in the long run it's going to afghanistan is going to be better off because we're out of it i think that is a very real possibility in the short run it's a nightmare but maybe in the long run they're going to be better off for sure in the long run we're going to be better off because we were because we were expending you know human lives in an effort in afghanistan that was not directly benefiting us you know what it costs afghanistan is still up in the air and i don't know if we'll be able to ever quantify that yeah, yeah. There's there's a policy that's tangential to this discussion, but is so critical in my mind to what would be good for us to have done. We've talked immigration before, Brad. Yes, we if, have. <laughs> if our immigration policy was what Brad and I described, which is to say, anyone who wants to work, no, 
no, uh, not become a citizen. Anyone who wants to work can, can live come here and work, and work and live here and work. Period. Uh, with you could you could filter out if you wanted to uh, extreme criminals and things like that. That's fine. But any normal citizen who wants to who wants to come here and work can. Period. And get a work visa for basically nothing. And if they can get a ticket here, they can come. And then you have Americans who are in a position, you know, you get a fundraiser going uh, to buy tickets for the people who want to come. Then when, by the time we leave, we announce we're leaving, we give people some time. By the time we leave, the people who are going to be killed by this regime change, a lot of them could leave. It was, some of the videos are sickening. You've probably seen a few of them, Brad. I won't, I won't describe them in detail, but people were trying to get out, desperately trying to get out. And whatever asylum laws and how that works in navigating that system should be, asylum should not be a thing in the United States because we should make it so easy for people to get a work visa Mm -hmm. that everybody who wants Mm -hmm. to work can come. And Tons of these people, because I feel that's the people that, uh, you know, at the human level is really, really tearing me up with this whole thing is that there are people there who are going to die because they were on the wrong side. Yeah, they yeah, were part yeah. of this military group. They were part of whatever it is. And everything falls apart. And they're just waiting at this point. They're hiding. They're waiting. They're in their houses. Uh, the, there are some people tying themselves to planes in the hopes that that saves them. That could have been avoided to a large degree. There's always going to be some who didn't make it out for whatever reason, didn't have the money, didn't have the means, weren't able to get a flight. But you could have had a very large number of people get out and be starting their new lives in the United States. And that for all of these places around the world where we could maybe get involved and maybe do a little good, you can have the, a lot of those same beneficial effects by just having an open policy for people for pe- to come and work here. A chance for people to leave those countries and come here. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. That's yeah. always going to be a much cleaner solution. It's always going to be a much cleaner solution. It, it is so much cleaner. You, you could even use the military to to bring them, right? Mm-hmm. If that's what you wanted to mm-hmm. do, to transport them. Uh, that and to, and to evacuate them even. Be like, go door to door. Do you want to leave? Good. Come with us, yeah. Come with us. Uh, that, that would really change how I felt about this whole thing. And that would, and I think that would change how we look at most disasters in the world of this kind, where, where there's some kind of tyranny and there's some kind of oppression, some kind of change and, you know, the fall of Iraq and different things like that. No, absolutely, Dan. Absolutely. But unfortunately, we're, we're a far cry away from that. And so, in the end, what we get is this is this absolute mess that we're all just going to have to live with. Yeah. Yep, news is going to be tough for a little while. We're, lo- we're super lucky in where we live in the world. Absolutely. Absolutely. With that, thank you for listening. This has been an episode of Rethinking Politics. You can find us on all of the major podcasting apps or on YouTube. You can reach out to us at rethinkingpoliticspodcast at gmail.com or you can visit our website at rethinkingpolitics.podbean.com where you can support us via Patreon. Thanks and have a wonderful day.